My Black Counts is a podcast series produced by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health, with assistance from WYPR. Hello, everyone. Welcome to My Black Counts, an environmental justice podcast dedicated to helping people know so they can grow and help things flow with their communities. My name is Dr. Jacoby McGill Wilson. In today's episode, I want to talk about environmental racism again, y'all. It's the intentional citing of environmental hazards in locally wanted land uses and communities of color, right? But you also have environmental racism when you don't provide people access to infrastructure. Let's talk about Mississippi, folks. I'm from Mississippi. I grew up in Vicksburg, Mississippi. I have family who live in Jackson, Mississippi, right? You've heard about this water crisis in Jackson right now because of extreme weather due to climate change. There's been more rain, record-breaking rain in the Jackson area. The Pearl River is flooded, which means people don't have access to water because of the ability to uh, have clean water due to all that input of rain. But there was a crisis before this crisis. Jackson has been dealing with a water crisis for years, and it's not just because of climate. You got to look at the fact that this community has eroding water infrastructure. They have old pipes that were put in 60 years ago. They have treatment plants that are old and need to be upgraded. Okay, those are the facts, right? But this is an environmental racism issue, or hell, environmental apartheid, because Jackson is 80% black. Jackson has about 25% of their, their population in poverty. So they got these underlying social and economic vulnerabilities that make them at risk from these climate-related impacts. And the reason why Jackson has so many folks of color and so poor, you can link it back to the civil rights movement. You can link it back to white flight. At the civil rights movement, you know, folks in Jackson, the white folks left to go out to the suburbs, to go out to the surrounding counties. So basically what you have is an apartheid-like system in Mississippi where you have a red a state government of who doesn't care. They don't care about black folks in that state of Mississippi. You got a city council that's primarily black that's trying to run the city. They may have some issues here and there, but again, this water crisis that's really about not getting the appropriate attention from the state government and making sure they get the appropriate investments to address these long-term infrastructure issues, y'all. That's why I call it apartheid, right? Y'all know the apartheid that happened in, in South Africa? Well, we got apartheid in the Mississippi. Forget that. We got a plantation state still in Mississippi. We got environmental slavery still in Mississippi. We got environmental racism still in Mississippi. So Dr. Bullet talks about folks don't have the complexion for protection as the least environmental hazards. Well, what's happening in Jackson, Mississippi, folks don't have the complexion for investment. Because the way you address the lack of access to healthy sewer and water infrastructure is by investment. The investments that are needed have been blocked for the city of Jackson. Well, other surrounding communities that are more white have been getting investments in sewer and water infrastructure, have been getting investments in transportation infrastructure. So, okay, so again, why is it environmental racism? Environmental racism is just not the disproportionate burden of hazards. And look at one of the languages in communities of color. It's also procedural inequities in how the law is applied, right? 
Y'all read the book, The Color of Law. It's also the, how we invest in communities. Look at the disinvestment and divestment communities during the civil rights era. You can look at the AFHA and redlining, how some neighborhoods couldn't get loans. That's a form of systemic structural racism. You see how disinvestment and divestment occurred in those communities where the white folks left, the tax revenue left, the grocery stores left, the schools left, the infrastructure left. That's systemic racism too, right? And then, so what you were talking about is inequities in planning, zoning, and development drive environmental injustice. Gentrification is a driver of environmental injustice. The suburbanization movement was a driver of environmental justice. Segregation is a driver of environmental justice. So what you see in Jackson, Mississippi, is just not a water crisis that's happened overnight. It's a long-term water crisis, but it's an environmental disaster that's been in making over decades. And it's a form of racism. And it's unfortunate that the state government hasn't taken these issues seriously. But the reason why the state government in Mississippi hasn't taken this seriously is the Confederate government. You have legislators who still believe the Confederacy. You have a governor who is not uh, taking care of all his citizenry, and he's pointing fingers, blaming the Jackson City Council about what's happening with this water crisis, and they've had cost of relationships. He's not doing his job because, again, you have a racist, red, Confederate government, a plantation mentality government, a plantation state apartheid government situation in Mississippi, where a black political structure a permanent black community is getting no resources and being controlled by the white apartheid leadership. That's what we have in Jackson, Mississippi. So you have climate change, extreme weather, eroding infrastructure, and you have systemic structured racism. Again, folks in Jackson, not only don't they have the complexion for protection, but they don't have the complexion for investment. And what can we do about that? You see that President Biden has come in, gets the support from FEMA to provide resources to folks that have access to water. Think about it, y'all. If you don't have access to water, you have a human right to water, right? So you're really having human rights abuses that people are experiencing right now in Jackson. You talk about the Flint water crisis, right? We're dealing with the litter issues. This is similar. You got folks across the country who don't have proper sewer and water infrastructure, who don't have, as one of my mentors would say, basic amenities. You have the right to basic amenities. You have the right to safe, clean, affordable water. You have the right to safe, clean housing. You have the right to safe, healthy food. And folks in Jackson are experiencing environmental injustice in various forms. So this issue with this water crisis is water injustice. This issue that you see in Jackson, Mississippi is an example again of environmental racism. We have some initiatives that could be helpful in the short term and long term to help my brothers and sisters uh, who live in Mississippi, my family who lives in Jackson, Mississippi. FEMA can come in to help. EPA can come in to help. We need to make sure that the state revolving fund dollars, which are used to upgrade our water treatment infrastructure, that those dollars are made available to help with the treatment plants. We got to get new pipes throughout that city. When you don't have access to water, You can't take showers. You can't use a water to provide formula to babies. There's a boil advisory now uh, in in Jackson. So they have to boil the water to kill microbes like E. coli. Think about what it means to susceptible populations like children who need water to survive. 
the elderly who need water to survive. I mean, you think about climate-related impacts, you have extreme rain events, right? But you also have heat issues. So we don't have access to water. You could die from heat stroke. You got folks in the capital city of a state in this country who don't have access to water, who are drinking bottled water. This is not the first time they've been drinking bottled water. So we need to bring in FEMA. We need to bring in EPA. We need to make sure this is a homeland security issue. We need to make sure that this critical infrastructure is upgraded as soon as possible. And so leveraging federal dollars from our federal agencies, also bringing in the USDA, bringing in Healthy Human Services, bringing in HUD, all these agencies need to be activating funds to provide services, emergency relief services, to folks who right now don't have water, particularly those who are pregnant, uh, those who are immunocompromised, elderly, children, and those who have underlying comorbid conditions and dealing with health disparities. That's the immediate thing. In the long term, we have to make sure the state revolving fund dollars, just as 40 benefits get to these communities, these monies for the uh, CARES Act, because these communities are probably also disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, get into Jackson, Mississippi, also the dollars for the bipartisan infrastructure bill. They need those monies now, but they needed those investments five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. So this is not a problem that just occurred overnight. This is a problem of structural and systemic racism. This is a problem of racial politics. This is a problem of plantation politics in the state of Mississippi. So we got to eradicate the plantation politics. We got to make sure the federal government basically takes over because you can't trust the state government provides support and resources needed in the city of Jackson. We got to see Congressman Benny Thompson, who lives in Mississippi, provide additional leadership to make sure resources get into the city of Jackson. And we need to look at making Jackson as a capital city. It should be the economic hub for the state. But instead, due to white flight, in economic racial segregation, you know, a lot of the investments and resources are not happening in our, our capital city. They're happening in other parts of the state, which I said is a problem, but it needs to be proportional investments in infrastructure, housing infrastructure, food infrastructure, water infrastructure, sewer infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, public services, emergency services, to make sure the residents of Jackson get the services they deserve, but particularly our most vulnerable residents who've been suffering during this water crisis and who will continue to suffer and the suffering be exacerbated as climate change worsens, as they have more extreme rain events, as they have more stormwater issues, as they have more sewage issues, as they have more public health crisis in that community. It's an example of environmental racism and we have to make sure that the community voices are heard in the process and they haven't been heard. We have to make sure that taxpayers' resources uh, that are needed in these communities get these communities. We have to make sure that the federal government steps up. In today's episode, we're going to have a quick recap of the annual Environmental Justice and Health Disparities Symposium, which was held on August 11, 13. Just a little bit of background symposium. This was our eighth EJ symposium. And the purpose of this symposium is to bring together academics, leaders from grassroots organizations, uh, folks in the nonprofit sector, policymakers, key stakeholders, 
to talking about environmental justice issues that impact frontline and fenceline communities. These are the communities that host environmental hazards, like incinerators, like landfills, petrochemical operations. For those of you who live on the eastern shore, chicken farms. For those of you who may live in, uh, down in Louisiana or in Texas, petrochemical operations. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Those facilities that emit pollution to the air, water, and soil that can impact human health. And this symposium is a space for us to convene, network, and learn from each other. And this year's theme was energy versus power, visions for the future. The fact that we have communities that are experiencing uh, energy injustice Communities that are dealing with climate change. You heard me say it before. You may not believe in climate change, but climate change believes in you. Talking about power issues when it comes to communities who've been used for, as sacrifice zones. Communities who've been dumped on, right? Communities who don't have a voice in environmental decision making. Why, for some reason, all the landfills, all the brownfields, all those toxic sites all the highways and byways, for some reason, tend to be in Black communities, in brown communities. As Dr. Robert Bullard says, we don't have the complexion for protection, right? And the use of technology in this work, how we can use science to empower folks, so you can collect your own data through community science to understand what you've been exposed to, to understand how heat impacts human health. So it was a great symposium. We had panelists from communities across the country who talked about their work in environmental justice. We had a panel on the fifth anniversary of Hurricane Maria. Y'all remember what happened when Hurricane Maria hit the United States Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico, and the devastation to our brothers and sisters there hit the state of Florida. We also had a, another hurricane session, the fifth anniversary of Hurricane Harvey. You remember how Hurricane Harvey dumped 30 trillion gallons of rain on the city of Houston. It was a thousand year rain event, right? Flood event. And we had petrochemical releases uh, from facilities in the Houston Ship Channel, North America's largest petrochemical corridor. And who disproportionately lives near all those hazards? Who hosts those oil facilities, those gas facilities, those refiners? You know who, people who look like you and me. Black folks and Latinos, right? We talked about the history of the civil rights movement. Now, again, just remind everyone, Dr. King is the grandfather of the environmental justice movement. There will be no EJ movement without Dr. King, without civil rights leaders, right? We talked about Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, an act that's supposed to protect us from disparate impacts, right, of federal policies and federal funding. We talked about issues around climate change and how some communities, you know, because of social uh, vulnerability, you know, the lack of access to good infrastructure, because they're poor, because they don't have, they don't have political power, that they're differentially impacted by climate change from hurricanes to heat issues to flooding. You got droughts as well, right? And we talked about water justice issues, how some communities don't have access to good sewer and water infrastructure. Do y'all know that some folks in the country, when they flush their toilets, that waste gets spit out of their homes or that waste goes to containment pond? 
you flush your toilet, your waste goes to a shipping plant. They flush their toilet, it goes to a pond and they spray the waste on the ground, right? We also talked about issues of food sovereignty, the, the ability, the, the need for people to, to grow their own food, to feed their families, right? And the importance of that. We talked about energy sovereignty, the, the, the need for folks to be able to produce their own energy, you know, clean energy, renewable energy. We talked about policies that this new administration has developed around climate change. Uh, President Biden's Executive Order 14008. It says, as we move from a dirty energy economy, right, as we move away from gasoline and natural gas and coal to clean energy, right, solar, wind, geothermal, 4% of those benefits should go to disadvantaged communities. The communities that have been used to host the coal-fired power plants, the communities that have been used to host right, the natural gas burning power plants. The communities have been used to host our highways and byways. The communities have been used to host our refineries, who tend again to be what? More Black folk, more Latinos, our indigenous brothers and sisters, right? And, and we also talked about, again, tools that you can use to understand what's happening in your local environment, why your block counts, why my block counts. We heard from distinguished environmental justice leaders like Reverend Dr. Benjamin Chavis, who coined the term environmental racism, the intentional targeting of communities of color for these hazards, for what we call Lulu's, locally wanted land uses, like the incinerators again, the landfill again, you know, energy, the, the uh, Willowbridge incinerator for those who live in Baltimore, right? Those who live in all those chicken farms, you know, before you get down to the beach in Delaware. Those of you who may live near all those hog farms in eastern North Carolina, those of you who live near um, in St. James Parish by those petrochemical operations down in Louisiana, those of you who live, you know, on the border of in El Paso with all that truck traffic coming from from Mexico, right? Those of you who live in Detroit with the marathon facility, uh, with all that truck traffic coming from Canada and all the pollution issues. Those of you who live in communities where you have older housing, and we still got land, y'all. Lead, lead, lead. Y'all know what happens when our kids are exposed to lead. It impacts their brain development, right? It impacts their IQ. It puts a cap on their potential. These are type of issues that we're talking about when you think about environmental racism, right? And so you had Dolly Burwell, one of the mothers of the environmental justice movement. And you have Charles Lee, who all talked on the panel about the 40th anniversary of the Warren County PCB landfill fight. What are PCBs? Polychlorinated biophenols. Basically, they had this contaminated dirt that they want to bring into this primary Black community, Afton and Warren County, right? Black, poor, rural, old well water. They said, hey, we're going to put this stuff here. And folks said no. They laid across the ground to stop the trucks from coming in. And this was the spark of the, of the environmental justice movement in this country. Right. You connect it back to Dr. King as the grandfather with a sanitation worker strike, you know, when Memphis was assassinated. But then a national spark really is in Warren County. It was a riveting session that they told about the stories of how people fought and came together. And the importance of the church again, because this United Church of Christ and other uh, faith groups who came together in this moment in time to start this new movement. Because the environmental movement wasn't doing its job. And that's why the EJ movement emerged. Right. So you had that session. We had another session with some of the 
other icons of the EJ movement, like Dr. Buller have already mentioned, uh, Dr. Beverly Wright and Peggy Shepard, co-founder of We Act for Environmental Justice in Harlem, New York. And they talked about funding the EJ movement. In the past, we should say the, the EJ movement wouldn't be televised nor would it be funded. But now, with this new administration, with foundations stepping up and stepping in, with accelerators out there, with big foundations like Basil's Earth Fund, uh, Kresge and others, we're seeing more dollars going to communities who need capacity to address these issues. We see dollars coming out of bipartisan infrastructure bill to go into communities to improve the infrastructure. Now, going from unjust transportation infrastructure to just transportation infrastructure, going from unjust housing infrastructure to just housing infrastructure. We need the fund to go from just unjust healthcare infrastructure to just healthcare infrastructure, right? And of course, we're going to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act later on in this session. And then we had one of the most powerful moments of the symposium was on Saturday, August 13th, when Reverend Lennox Yearwood, CEO of the Hip Hop Caucus, gave the 10th annual Siege keynote lecture. And he spoke passionately about environmental justice and why in energy justice and climate justice and why we need to prioritize protecting our most vulnerable, protecting our children during this energy transition to make sure that the energy transition from dirty fossil fuels to clean energy is not just for some, but just for all. And here's a clip from that session. There are a number of bad things in the bill as well. And when I think about the bad things in the bill, it puts me in a position when I have to really think, is this good at all? Is this really something that I can assign my name to? Because on one hand, I've been fighting forever. I'm originally, I've mentioned from Louisiana. I saw family and friends drown in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. And just last year, less than a year ago, on August 29th, on the same day as Hurricane Katrina, I saw family and friends again horrified what happened with Hurricane Ida. So I understand the climate crisis more than anybody. I understand what it means to see a crisis and to have your family and friends left behind in the richest country in the world. I understand what it means to have folks like my dear Mama D, Diane French Cole on Dergewan Street in the seventh ward who literally would not evacuate but would stand in her house on Dergewan Street and because she lived in a neighborhood that had mostly seniors in it, 80 and 90 she stayed behind in her 70s to make sure that when their bodies were floating down the street her and her son would go out there and catch the bodies and tie them to the tree and because they she said these are my neighbors and i can't allow black folk who sat in the back of the bus in new orleans who fought through jim crow and segregation i can't allow for them folks to just float down the street and so i got to go out there in my seven-year-old middle-aged slim self and tied into a tree so they can be identified i understand this climate crisis this ain't about no planting trees and recycling that's important too but i understand this a climate crisis that gives you nightmares in the middle of the night i understand the climate crisis where i'm thinking about those babies who are who can't breathe in michigan and flint i understand the climate crisis when there are folks who are in war rooms 
who are sitting around, sitting around, putting together a business plan that means a death sentence to my communities. I understand this climate crisis more than anybody understands this climate crisis. So if I want to see some get fixed, please understand I want to see it get fixed. He made me tear up because he got into a spirited uh, dialogue with the audience about when it comes to this Inflation Reduction Act, which we're going to talk about, we can't get too excited about the bill because it seems like it's not focused on the least of these, the most vulnerable, and really was a, a, a win only for those of us who are middle class and above. And the folks who are most impacted by environmental injustice, climate injustice, and energy injustice are the poor, are the low income, are those whose voices have not been heard politically, those who have been marginalized. And the bill seems not to fully protect those populations. Again, I don't want to steal thunder, my brother, Dr. Mustafa, when we talk later, but I just want to emphasize that point. Very powerful speech. You should go online to www.ceejh.center to listen to that very powerful statement about we got to step up when it comes to environmental justice. We also heard from folks talking about the Justice 40 initiative. We heard from legislators from the state of Maryland. We heard from indigenous groups. Uh, we had a very powerful panel that talked about global environmental justice. Environmental injustice and, and the movement for justice is just not a U.S. thing, y'all. We got folks fighting for environmental justice in South America. In Pakistan, Bangladesh, right? Folks in Myanmar, folks on the continent, of my home continent of Africa, fighting for environmental justice. It was great to hear that connection between the global EJ movement and what's happening in the U.S. We also had grassroots groups on other topics of importance and folks from state agencies in Maryland working on environmental issues, folks from agencies in D.C. Uh, we had legislators from Delaware who spoke. This was a powerful symposium. And we also had our guest for today's episode, Dr. Mustafa Sandiogo Lee. Dr. Ali is executive vice president of the National Wildlife Federation, and he's my brother, uh, Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. We had numerous grassroots groups and agencies, and our guest for today's episode. Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali, Executive Vice President of the National Wildlife Federation. Welcome, Mustafa, who's also my frat brother, Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Dr. Wilson. I appreciate you. So now I'm going to talk about energy justice today. And so it's great to have Mustafa. You know, we're going to keep our symposium theme, talk about, again, energy versus power, but focus in on energy justice. And we're going we're gonna to get into the meat of this newly signed Inflation Reduction Act. I think it's a groundbreaking act, but I think there's some concerns that we're going to discuss as well about it. And then talk about, you know, what are the implications of this act uh, and the benefits for communities who are experiencing energy justice, environmental justice, and climate justice issues. So let me, let me go to a definition. What is energy justice? Energy justice refers to the goal of achieving equity in both the social and economic participation in the energy system, while also remediating social, economic, and health burdens on frontline and fence communities who have historically been harmed by the energy system. You know, in other words, 
Angie Justice explicitly centers the concerns of marginalized communities and aims to make energy more accessible, affordable, clean, and democratically managed for all communities. So when you think about energy injustice, right, you know, a lot of energy injustice is related to environmental racism. If you look at the life cycle of energy production in our country, right, if you look at extraction of uh, fossil fuels, you know, think about the dinosaurs, right? Over time, create these fossil fuels that we like to use, we like to burn, right? So we take it out the ground. We have oil and gas wells, or you have something called fracking that you've heard before, hydraulic fracturing that disproportionately impacts communities of color. It disproportionately impacts low-income communities. And then you have the transport of the fossil fuels. You heard the pipeline fights. Our indigenous brothers and sisters fighting against pipelines, uh, the Atlantic Coast pipelines. Those pipelines. Then the transport side of it disproportionately impacts, again, communities of color, like our tribal communities, impacts low-income communities. Then you have the processing of fossil fuels. So you heard me talk about refineries. Refineries process the fossil fuels. Can be, they can be then turned into different products. Uh, they can be used for, again, you know, burning the fossil fuels for transportation or heating, or those fossil fuels get processed at petrochemical facilities and then turn to other products like plastics, okay? So think about Cancer Alley in Louisiana, the Houston Ship Channel, again, the largest petrochemical corridor in North America, refineries in Richmond, California, refineries in, on the Eastern Seaboard in New Jersey and New York. When it comes to processing, those processing operations, again, disproportionately impact communities of color, disproportionately impact Black people, Latino Latinx populations, and this is brothers and sisters. So folks of color don't have the complexion for protection. These things are above average disproportionately in communities of color. You're not finding these refineries more often in white communities. You're not finding these petrochemical operations more often in white communities. You're finding them more often above average in Black communities, in Latino, Latinx communities, in tribal communities. And then you have the combustion of fossil fuels. Whose communities again? Who don't have the complexion for protection? Coal-fired power plants found more often near communities of color. Gas-fired power plants found more often near communities of color. When you think about the combustion of fossil fuels for transportation, highways and byways, Whose communities, whose neighborhoods, those of you live in D.C., Black folks live in D.C., War 78, got 295 going to your neighborhoods, right? Look at the highways in L.A., look at the highways in Atlanta, look at the highways in New York, any place across the country, you're going to see highways and byways disproportionately in communities of color. That's not by accident, folks. It's called planning. That's our frat brother Carlton Ellie said that, right? I'm quoting Carlton because the National Highway Defense Act of 1956 on purpose said, we are going to build these highways through these communities because we want to get rid of these folks. So it's not by accident that Durham looks the way it looks with highways or Charlotte, North Carolina looks the way it looks with highways or Charleston looks the way it looks. Tulsa looks the way it looks when it comes to highways. These highways are in our communities of color and then folks are dealing with combustion byproducts, greenhouse gas emissions like methane and carbon dioxide and then also those co-pollutants, the things that, that harm your health, particulate matter, Dust in the air impact leads to asthma. Volatile compounds 
Y'all know that, that new car smell, hold your breath? Those are VOCs, okay? And then you also have uh, things like sulfur dioxide, SO2, socks. Pull up your socks. That's the way to remember it. And then nitrogen dioxide, knocks, knock on the door. Those are combustion byproducts. Those relate to traffic. We call it, y'all know the trap gang, trap music, not trap music, but T-R-A-P, traffic-related air pollution. Traffic-related air pollution disproportionately impacts who again? Communities of color and low-wealth communities. So you cannot separate energy justice from environmental justice or climate justice, okay? So Mustafa, you know, we have these important issues about the dirty fossil fuel infrastructure in our communities of color and these negative public health, economic, and social impacts. What are your thoughts about energy justice, Frat, from a climate change perspective? Talk to the audience. Well, you know, you so aptly broke this down. You know, for me, I look at, a number of these issues through an apartheid-esque system that has been put in place in our country through redlining and restrictive covenances and zoning um, that has pushed our people into certain locations. And as you so aptly shared, then folks were disinvesting in those communities. We see it play out in policy. So when we're talking about you know energy injustice, we have to look at policy traditionally and how it has been used in our country to make sure that wealth was never garnered inside of our communities, and so that we had to bear the burden for the things that no one else wanted. So there are four sort of elements that are a part of our conversation today. One of them is around the burdens, and we know about the public health burdens. And for those of you who don't know, you know, when we talk about 200 to 300,000 people dying disproportionately in our country from air pollution, we know that a significant portion of that is actually African-American and Latinx and indigenous brothers and sisters who are the ones who are losing their lives. We also understand that we've got 24 million folks in our country who are suffering from asthma and 7 million kids. And once again, it is our folks who are the ones who are going to the emergency rooms and the ones that are losing their lives. And what is the generator of that? It is those fossil fuels that folks have been using for years. Some folks have been using them to garner wealth. And we don't talk enough about how wealth uh, has played a role in the decision-making that has gone on inside of our country. For those of us who do this work, we often talk about people placing profit uh, over people or over vulnerable communities. So that has been a part of this paradigm of those with privilege and power sacrificing our communities, seeing our communities as less than valuable, as disposable, um, and, you know, and, and a number of other words that we could use to describe how they have interacted or, you know, made choices about what goes on inside of our community. So the burden aspect of uh, energy injustice is incredibly important because people often don't realize that you are shortening our lives by the choices that have been made. The other side of the injustice paradigm is around poverty. In poverty, there's intentionality in poverty. And, you know, Sokobi, you and I have talked about this for decades now of the choices that were made uh, to make sure that, once again, there was never wealth or wealth was very difficult in our communities to be able to generate. And the dynamics that go along with poverty, as you broke down what sacrifice zones uh, often look like, you know, poverty is the main driver in there. Because when folks know that they can, you know, extract everything they possibly can from our communities, then the only thing left is for those negative entities to come in. There's also another dynamic that's a part of poverty, and that also is you know, the lack of infrastructure inside of our communities, um, because infrastructure, when done properly, 
um, when done through equitable development principles, as you called out our brother, uh, Carlton Ely, as well, can build wealth. But when it's not done properly, it continues to play a role in, in the extraction uh, of opportunities, the extraction of culture, the extraction of wealth from our community. So we've got to make sure that people understand these dynamics that are going on in relationship to poverty. The other part of the question uh, of this paradigm is around access. Who has access? Who has access to cleaner forms of energy? Who has access also um, to being able to influence the decision-making process of what's going on? Who even has access in democracy? People often don't talk enough about democracy in relationship uh, to energy uh, sort of democracy or energy um, types of situations that are going on. And I often remind folks that there are a number of positions, political positions that we often don't know about, have never held in states that are making decisions uh, about how and where our energy flows. And why is that important? Well, it's important for everyday folks um, because we know that we end up paying sometimes three to four times more for our energy uh, than white brothers and sisters do, uh, which means that we have less disposable income, which means that we have to make some tough decisions about turning the lights on or being able to, you know, save a few dollars to send our kids to school or put food on the table. So all of these things come together in a cumulative way, whether on the positive side of the equation or the negative side of the equation. And that's why we have to call out these injustices that are happening in relationship to energy, because if we don't address them in the beginning of this process moving forward, then even if we move toward a clean economy, we will bring forward some of those old, bad, and destructive elements of the fossil fuel industry that have not benefited our communities at all. Thank you for that powerful statement, brother. Yeah, I mean, you can't let the folks that created a problem then benefit, we're going to talk about this, from all these new dollars. I need new companies that are not dirty fossil fuel companies to be leading this clean energy transition, and this just energy transition. And as you said, not the ones who've been part of the problem. So again, folks, you think about these energy issues, as, as Brother Mustafa talked about, you talk about affordability, accessibility, you talk about infrastructure, right? You talk about poverty, and the contest between poverty and racism too, right? And so these are important points we want to make sure the audience is understanding and then understand why your neighborhood counts and why your block counts and how this comes down to your neighborhood and block level. This energy injustice, how you experience it, as Mustafa said, and how much disposable income that you have, right? So he spoke about this energy burden issue, right? And energy burden refers to the percent of a household's income spent on utilities for heating, cooling, and other home energy services. Join us for part two of this intriguing conversation with our special guest, Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali, on our next episode. You've been listening to My Block Counts. My Block Counts is sponsored by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health at the University of Maryland. Executive producer and host, Dr. Sakobi Wilson, with production assistance from Ariel Wharton. Technical producer, Kelly Avent. Additional information about My Block Counts can be found at ceejh.center or wypr.org. New episodes of My Block Counts are released each month. Please share and subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review.